Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. I'm your host, Mark Yakino. I'm a managing director with Major Lindsay in Africa, the sponsor and um, mind behind this podcast. My guest today is Robin Bello, the Director of Wellbeing at Kirkland and Ellis. Robin is an accomplished lawyer and clinician and brings a wealth of information on how to address mental health issues in the legal profession. First, Robin, welcome to Erasing the Stigma. We're so glad to have you as a guest. Thank you for the invitation today. Robin, I always like to allow the guests to tell them, tell the audience a little bit about themselves because they usually do a much better job than I do. So can you share a little bit of your background and in, 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 in history with our listeners? Sure. Well, as you mentioned, um, I am an attorney and I'm also a licensed clinical professional counselor, um, which is essentially a therapist. Um, I have been working in the clinical world for, oh my goodness, probably about 12 or 13 years now. Um, I started out graduating um, after college, went to law school, and was um, both a public defender and a state's attorney, and then moved into private practice. Um, I did that for about eight and a half years before deciding to go back and get my master's in counseling. Um, it may seem like a big leap, but they're actually very similar. Um, you have to remember what do judges call us in court? They call us counselors. So there's a, a lot of crossover. Um, so it really, it really was a, a good fit for me. Um, after um, obtaining my master's, I held a variety of different positions before ending up at the Lawyers Assistance Program which is a nonprofit, it's a statewide organization um, that is affiliated with the Illinois Supreme Court that helps judges, lawyers, and law students with substance abuse and mental health issues. Um, initially, I was the clinical director there and then became the executive director. And I was also there for about eight and a half years. And then back in March of last year, I joined Kirkland as the director of well-being. Well, you certainly had a eventful career in terms of doing many meaningful things. Can you tell the audience what was the driving thinking behind leaving the practice of law and going back and getting into counseling and, 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 and that sort of um, angle to your career? Because while there are similarities, obviously they're they're, they're different in a lot of ways. And I'm just curious, what, what inspired you to, to go down the counseling route? Sure. So I primarily practiced in litigation, um, which makes sense as a public defender and state's attorney. Um, it is a high stress, high anxiety position. Um, many people who practice in that area, especially public defenders, end up suffering from compassion fatigue which was not something that was talked about or taught um, when I was back in law school. So I had no idea how to prepare for it and to set appropriate boundaries. 
Um, I eventually moved into private practice where I um, did a variety of things, both criminal law, some real estate, but then also family law as well, which I don't know if you know much about family law, but that is also very high stress, high anxiety. Um, there's just a lot of fighting back and forth. Um, and I laugh because if someone had given me the Myers-Briggs assessment prior to going to law school, they probably would have said, don't be a lawyer. Because even though I was a litigator and I really enjoyed it, um, I'm not a person that actually enjoys conflict. Um, one of the things that I took a look at when trying to figure out what I wanted to do next after the practice of law was identify what I actually did like about my position. And for a number of years, I practiced in juvenile court. And if you're at all familiar with juvenile court, um, it's not just the defense lawyer, judge, state's attorney, and client in there. Um, there's usually a whole cadre of therapists, social workers, caseworkers that come in with the person, uh, with the client. And I ended up spending a lot of time working with them and realized that they seem to have a much um, bigger impact on a client's life than I was. They had a much more long-term relationship with the person than I did as a public defender. So that's something I wanted to start to focus on is helping people out more for the long term. So when did you segue into focusing a tremendous amount of your professional time inward on the legal profession? Sure, so after I um, got my master's degree, I joined um, the Illinois Professionals Health Program which is a similar organization that helps physicians, assistants, nurses, and veterinarians uh, with substance abuse and mental health issues. Um, the director at the time, Dr. Martin Dute, um, was really, um, really invested in the program and it was very, very successful. And he took a look at the adolescent population that was around him and was wondering, could he replicate what he was doing for the physicians and nurses with adolescents? Um, and somehow we ended up finding each other. And I remember in my interview, he's like, you're the only one crazy enough to work with adolescents. Let's give this a go. So I created a program there that was modeled after his. Um, but I was working with people who were dealing with the physicians and nurses. And they, they kept telling me, you know, you should really be working at the lawyer's assistance program with your background. And I had not even heard about LAP at that point. And it was said so many times to me, even though I enjoyed working with the adolescents, I finally looked them up um, and laughed because at that point, the organization, I think, was two people, maybe three people. You know, it's not like they had a career section for, for job postings. And so, um, but over the years, you know, I um, kind of, you know, stayed in touch um, with, the, with the people at the Illinois Professionals Health Program. And when an opening did occur, a fellow colleague reached out to the executive director there and said, I have the perfect fit for you. And so they introduced us, and that's how I ended up there. I really, um, I do miss working with the adolescents, but I do really see it in my career as coming full circle. Because while I didn't want to necessarily practice law anymore, I definitely missed aspects of it. And so I do enjoy working day-to-day -day with the attorneys um, and formerly with the judges and the law students um, because I, I do have an inherent understanding, you know, of what they're experiencing and what they're going through and, and how their mind really works. Because one of the things that I, I tell people is that lawyers were very, very difficult clients. Um, we're not the easiest people to work with. So 
um, I look at that as a, as a, as a good challenge. So you spent a lot of time at the lawyer's assistance program, but then you made the leap to uh, taking a role at Kirkwood or AKA known as part of big law, so to speak. And, and what was the, um, what was the impetus to do that? And, and, and what was your sort of mandate coming into the role? Cause it's sure. a big well, paradigm a shift. It is. It's a great question because Kirkland is not just big law. It's like the biggest law, right? And we did not have a lot of experience with big law at the lawyer's assistance program. Um, I will say, you know, many big law firms did not reach out to us for assistance for whatever reason. We dealt mostly with solo practitioners, mid to larger size firms. And so big law was kind of always the, um, it was just kind of out there lurking. Um, I had a couple years ago, I'm trying to think how long, maybe three or four years ago, Kirkland decided to start um, a well-being initiative, not necessarily a program, but a well-being initiative based upon a book um, with the title Life XT. And I apologize, I can't remember the author's name now, um, but it got a lot of press. Um, they brought in some programming, hired some people, external people to come in to do things. And we really took notice of it at LAP. Like, wow, you know, big law is interested in this. They're really looking at this. Um, and then unfortunately, the program died out. And from what I was told, and the reason why they, they ended up creating the position is they really felt like there needed to be an internal person you know, a Kirkland person, so to speak, you know, someone that people could see as being trusted, as being confidential, you know, sort of one of us. And I had no plans to leave the lawyer's assistance program. Um, I didn't know if I was going to continue my entire career there, um, but I really didn't know, you know, where I was going to go next because there's really only one of me in each state. Um, so, you know, it was just, I had no idea where my career path was going to lead. And then, in December of the 2018, the job posted, and I was it, I was really intrigued by it. I didn't even think of applying at that moment, but I mentioned it to my husband, and he's like, "Why don't you apply?" And I'm like, "Well, it's big law, you know. Can they really be serious about well-being or wellness?" He's like, "Well, just apply." Um, so I did, and they called me right away, and you know, it was. I wouldn't even say it was so much of an interview process. It was a great conversation back and forth between myself and the people at Kirkland talking about, you know, what they, what they wanted the program to be kind of what their mission or what their initiative was and kind of what, you know, what I would kind of see what the program would be. So um, it was such a great experience during the interview process. I decided to take a huge leap of faith and leave, you know, a very good position um, to join Kirkland. I have talked to folks in in roles that would be similar-ish or or comparable-ish um, to yours at other big firms, and it and it strikes me that that the programs have sort of a different. There's a there's a palette of personalities that the programs take on. Some are more what I would call mind-body focused on stress management and anxiety management. Some are life skills focused and others are focused or at least have some orientation to um, addressing what I would call 
ways to get people with, with mental health issues into the proper uh, care. What, how would you characterize Kirkland, you know, as falling on that spectrum or some combination of those um, made up by me um, buckets? <laughs> you, know, you did a very good job. Um, Kirkland definitely took a clinical approach when creating the program. Just even from the job description, they wanted a lawyer and then they also wanted a licensed professional. And to be honest, I don't know that I would have taken on the position if they hadn't wanted that. Um, I think we had a very similar mindset as, as to what we thought the program should be. So while the program is holistic, I mean, we definitely focus on the wellness aspect, which is kind of one end of the spectrum, which I really view as preventative you know, putting things into place before people get too stressed out, anxious, depressed, um, abusing substances. But we also have a very, um, we take a very strong approach to helping people who are already currently suffering from mental health issues and substance abuse issues. And one of the things that I really try and stress when I'm speaking with people, both externally and internally, is that when I say mental health issues, and even as a professional, when I hear the word mental health, it's a bit of a misnomer because I go immediately, and I think many people go immediately to kind of the end of the spectrum, you know, bipolar, schizophrenia, some of the more significant mental health issues, which we do assist with, but we also help everyday mental health issues as well. You know, people experience stress every day. They may experience anxiety or depression on some level every day. And so we want to talk about, you know, those issues as well, too. Um, and then also, you know, the misuse of substances. Um, typically, it is alcohol with attorneys because we like to do things that are legal, right? Um, we don't like to break the law. Um, so that is the most prevalent substance that, that is abused. But there are other, you know, there are other substances as well. Um, but Kirkland definitely wanted to bring in someone or bring in a program that could you know, very much take a holistic approach. So the wellness, per, you know, preventative stuff, mindfulness meditation, which goes along with that, um, but also to, you know, help people with actual mental health issues, substance abuse issues, um, and fitness and nutrition as well. So with respect to mental health issues, and, and you talk about the spectrum, and, and one of the things for me is a that, that's a passion and it's also a, 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 I guess a point of um, a point of annoyance is the the overlooked fact that mental health issues can be actually the product of a biological disease and I think that's what you sort of characterize mm -hmm. is that other end of the spectrum bipolar mm -hmm. schizophrenia um, some forms of clinical depression but when you're talking about mental health issues that don't rise I'm not going to say don't rise to the level of a biological disease, but are actually conditions that require treatment. How do you um, how do you frame that so that you look for those issues and look at them as potentially things that require treatment versus what I would call I'm going to use a term that that probably isn't right, but I kind of said DYI do-it-yourself strategies meditation sure. things like that. I mean, because there is a difference in, in, in how you handle someone with mental health issues and whether or not they need to see a professional 
therapist or a psychiatrist versus someone who needs to be really taught how to just chill out? Sure. So what's interesting about that is both, you know, if we go back to that definition that I gave of everyday mental health issues, so stress, anxiety, kind of lower levels of depression, they can be both situational, meaning an event, you know, or your situation can be causing them and or they can also be biological. So, you know, I can be a more anxious person biologically, um, but it may not necessarily, um, but it can also be situational as well. And it can actually be triggered by a situation. So um, let me give you an example. So, you know, many people who are drawn to the practice of law are perfectionists. You would probably agree with that statement. Um, but because the industry drives perfectionism by both clients, judges, opposing counsel even, it can almost then create, you know, a sense of obsessive compulsive disorder in a person. There's a very fine line kind of between those two. Another example is someone who has kind of a, an underlying current of anxiety. and They've managed their whole life. They may not even really even realize that they're anxious. But now all of a sudden, let's say they have a job in big law and there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of deadlines, um, even though biologically they have that anxiety, it may be then triggered or enhanced by the um, situational or event too. So what I do is when I'm working with people is um, I do an assessment with them and really get, try and get a lot of information about what's going on with them. Um, their background, if they've ever engaged in previous treatments, and what that experience was like, you know, what they've tried before, what kind of coping skills are they trying to utilize, and, and really make a determination, you know, is this someone who would benefit from working with a therapist, or maybe even rise to a higher level and working with a treatment program, um, or is this someone who can benefit from a lesser, you know, intensive care level, you know, and maybe use mindfulness or meditation. That being said, um, I, you know, typically many therapists and, and the modalities that they, that they use um, incorporate mindfulness or meditation into, into their practice. As part of um, a regimen. So, yeah. As, exactly. As part of a regimen. Um, I am all for, mindfulness and meditation, um, even though I will admit to you and all of your listeners that I'm actually terrible at meditation. So um, am I, I frankly. <laughs> I, 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 I holistically embrace it. it, but I'm a bad meditator. Yeah, well, because it's, so I have the attorney brain, right? So it's constantly running. It's constantly thinking. I'm constantly ruminating. So you know, while I'm not great at it, so it's not necessarily a great coping skill for me to utilize if I'm in a crisis situation, it's definitely something I need to work on and I practice because it can actually then help me calm down or help me slow down so that I can evaluate a situation or an email or a phone call I get. Because, you know, what tends to happen is, especially with a lot of attorneys, if something negative or something crisis or emergency comes in, their brain goes into overdrive, right? And so you can use a mind mindfulness or meditation to kind of slow yourself down, bring yourself back. Um, but, you know, you, you're right. You hit the nail right on the head. It's, it's not going to work for everybody. 
Um, if someone is, you know, it feeling very anxious and it's affecting their day-to-day living, you know, their, their well-being, their productivity, their relationships with others, while that would be part of the regimen, it wouldn't be the whole part either. You know, I would definitely recommend that they work with someone individually and then, you know, together with that person, they can discuss medication as well. Because, no. you know, and there's people pros and cons with medication, but medication can absolutely um, be a big help to, you know, for some people. It can really take the edge off of what they're experiencing. When you do your assessment and you believe people need uh, a more therapeutic approach or a, a more intensive therapeutic approach, I guess a couple of questions. Are you actually working with attorneys and staff as a therapist or are you kind of facilitating them finding the right type of um, psychological or psychiatric professional? So that's a great question. Um, how I really explain it is even though I left the lawyer's assistance program, basically I'm running my own lawyer's assistance program at Kirkland. And so um, the services I provide are assessment, uh, referral, and case management. Um, I do do some brief counseling. So people who may only need you know, two or three sessions, I can absolutely handle. I always tell people too, you know, if you're, if you're having a day, if you're having a moment or an hour and you really need to talk with someone, absolutely reach out to me. But part of my position is to go out there and vet resources in each of the cities that we have an office in to find providers that would be a good fit for our people. Um, for staff, it's not as complicated. Um, there's many amazing therapists out there, but like I said before, lawyers are such difficult, challenging clients you really can't send um, a client to just any, any therapist. Um, they have to be someone who can push past the defense mechanisms, um, you know, be able to you know, work past manipulation, the argumentation, that sort of thing. And that's simply just to tell them, hey, you're working too much. You need to set some boundaries and stop multitasking. Because they also, these therapists have to understand and have a good grasp on you know, how the field of law works. And whether you're in big law or you're a solo practitioner, there's a lot of stuff that is similar. It is a high anxiety stress job. Um, and unfortunately, there's not a lot that we can do about it. So we have to kind of figure out a way to work within the system. Now, when you work with an attorney and, and you assess that they may need to see a therapist or a psychiatrist even, what is the, I'm going to call it, I'm going to make up a term. What is the uh, persuasion curve to get them from you to someone else for treatment? Sure. That's another um, great question. So just because someone reaches out to me doesn't mean that they're ready to take that next step, right? So one of the big things is timing. If I have someone reach out to me, I have to, and, they, and they're willing in that moment, I have to get them to that next person very quickly because unfortunately people can lose the motivation, lose the initiative. Um, they may, many people tell me after just even speaking with me to do the assessment that they feel better, which is great, but 
it's also a short-term fix. You know, many of the people I talk to, they need to be working with someone longer term. And while I'm happy to kind of help them in that moment, you know, they're, they're going to be best served by having a long-term relationship with someone. So having that timing, but really asking them, you know, questions, you know, what have you tried before? Um, You know, have you had any success? Um, You know, what, what do you want to have happen? And, you know, have, have these things that you've tried before worked for you? And if not, why? And really, you know, not telling them per se, hey, you need to do something different, but bringing them to that conclusion themselves so that they then feel like I've made the decision to take the next step. So because one of the things that therapists don't do or we shouldn't do is to really just per se give advice. Right. We're really there to help people kind of draw it out of them through questioning, through conversation, and letting people figure out what is going to work best for them. When you talk about getting people from you into, in front of a, a, a proper or a, a next step professional in a timely way, how does Kirkland come about creating the means to do that? Because I think that one of the problems that we see and some of us have experienced personally at times is the the ability to find a provider and then the ability to be integrated into that provider schedule or if they're even mm-hmm. taking new patients is you know a profound access of care issue not just for lawyers but for for, for people suffering mm-hmm. from mental health issues generally how is kirkland kind of have, have they figured out how to solve for that problem at least at least for their own well, if we could solve for that problem, I think we'd have to like patent it and sell it because you, again, hit the nail on the head. That is such a huge issue, especially in terms of psychiatrists and especially psychiatrists for children. That is such a big challenge. Um, so I'm going to answer your question kind of two different ways. One of the great things I think Kirkland did was make the decision to house me in the benefits department. So I really work hand in hand with people in that department who are very savvy in terms of the medical insurance that Kirkland has um, and being able to call them and say, listen, you know, we've reached out to one, two, three providers. There's, you know, no, not availability. You need to find us someone that, um, that has openings and can take someone right now. So that's not something that I am trained in or good at at all. Um, so thankfully I have the benefits Um, team really, really supporting me. Now, on the other flip side is when I took the position, one of the challenges was going to be to create a network of resources in each of the cities that Kirkland has offices in. And so slowly but surely, I am creating my list. And what I did was I reached out to um, marketers that I knew from my time at the Lawyers Assistance Program. So these are marketers for residential treatment programs throughout the world. And I asked them, okay, if you have a a person returning from care to Houston, who do you send them to? And through that network, I have been able to create this list and then, you know, speak with these providers. And um, because I have that personal relationship with them, like I just literally had a gentleman, an amazing therapist in New York in Midtown call me yesterday and say, hey, Robin, I just wanted to update you. I have openings now. And so, you know, having that content, that personal relationship with them, it, it very, very much helps. 
Um, and I, I still need to do more work in that area because Kirkland, as you know, is very big and very large, um, but it's, it's, it's a process. And finding, and finding two um, therapists that specialize in different areas. Um, I had a staff member reach out to me with regards to uh, marital issues since they were looking for a couple's counselor specifically. And not everybody is qualified to do that level right. of work, um, especially when there's um, some trauma associated with that. And so um, I was able to tap into um, a treatment program that I know that kind of works in that area and they were help, they were able to help me then connect with providers in that area. But it is definitely an ongoing challenge, um, especially in terms of providers who may or may not take insurance. Um, there's there's a good, yeah, good in, handful of them out there that don't take insurance. And in New York City, especially, I know oh. finding a, a a therapist or psychiatrist that takes insurance um, mm -hmm. is really really difficult. It's very complicated, and um, you know we have a list through our insurance provider, but it's not necessarily people that I know or I have vetted. Um, and one of my my hopes is that when we can return to travel, is that the next time I go to New York, is um, having you know Blue Cross Blue Shield give me a list of their providers and go around and you know for me to interview them and, and vet them and find people that would be, you know, appropriate for our staff and for our lawyers. When you're, when you're referring someone to a provider for treatment, are, are there any concerns about privacy as you're, um, as you're almost like you're an intermediary brokering or potentially brokering the care of, of an employee to a professional? Like w one step, person is in the care of a professional um are you relying on the, the attorney to give you updates if they want is it like a pristine handoff how do you how do you like navigate through you know some of the just inherent messiness of getting people to the right mental health provider and measuring whether or not maybe that it's effective for them it's just an interesting issue for me because you play in the benefits department plays a pretty significant proactive role in getting people to to an appropriate place, which I think is you know innovative and unusual. Sure, no, absolutely, and confidentiality and privacy are are of our utmost concern. So, when I reach out to a provider, I will not share the person's name with them. I will give them a little bit of background, you know, one to see if they have availability, and just two to just see if they would be a good fit for that person, um, and just to give them a little snippet or a little background. And then I then give the name to my client and say, you know, you know, I usually give two or three names and say these these would all, in my opinion, be good fits for you. Um, you know, please contact them. And then typically what I will do when I, when I speak to the provider, I say, you know, I don't need a signed release of information um, because, you know, participation in my program is voluntary. Um, if they want to sign a release of information so that you can report back to me, that's totally fine. Because one of the things that I do do is provide ongoing case management. And what that means is that I will, I am there for them as they, as they move through different levels or layers of treatment. Um, you know, they can always contact me again, update me. You know, I typically will check in on people, um, you know, a couple days out, a week out, a couple weeks out. 
Um, and sometimes it is to just make sure they did call, you know, just to give them a little bit of a poke because kind of going back to our conversation yeah. earlier, you know, sometimes they feel better after speaking with me and they're like, well, I don't really need to call. And they wait until another crisis happens and then they're wanting to call. And I really try and, and tell people the best time to start with someone is when you're not in a crisis. You know, of course, if you are, that's fine, too. But the best time to start and make a connection with someone and, you know, figure out the logistics of how you're going to get there and the time of the appointment and insurance is when you're not in crisis. Yeah, I think that you can't underestimate the ability of someone to think when they're not in an acute, in an acute state. Absolutely. And in one of the places that we see that often, um, and many times we saw that at the lawyer's assistance program was when people were severely depressed. Um, they couldn't actually even make the call. And so we would ask for permission to do so and say, you know, let's call and set up this appointment together. Um, you know, let's reach out to your supervisor together um, because they just, they just couldn't do it themselves. At the beginning of, um, of our, of our discussion, you talked about how Kirkland got, to a, a point where to continue with the initiative, they, they felt like they wanted someone who was a Kirkland employee to be the point person for this, which, which is a commitment of resources. But the one thing I'm curious about is, do you find or did you find until you sort of built your bona fides and, and, um, and, and a layer of trust that there was some trepidation about coming to you because you actually were a Kirkland employee versus a third party? I think that's absolutely going to be true. Even if I'm there five years, 10 years, 20 years, um, there's always going to be that subset of people that don't want to reach out internally. And that completely makes sense because there's always even that subset of people that don't want to reach out to the EAP, even though they're external, they're still tied to Kirkland, right? So yes. my hope too is you know one of the prongs of the program is I provide education regarding mental health, substance abuse, wellness, nutrition, and fitness. And the more I get out there, and the more I, you know, give this information, you know, we can reduce the stigma associated around getting help. That people may, you know, maybe thinking, oh, wait a minute, you know, maybe I do need some assistance or support. I don't want to reach out to Robin, but I'm going to do this on my own. So, you know, I'm, I'm also getting into people's brains and infiltrating that way, even though they may not work with me directly. And that's totally okay. And it could be even where, you know, one of their colleagues comes to a presentation and hears something that I have to say, and then they share it with that other colleague. And then that colleague reaches out externally and gets help. And that's still a win for the program. Now you mentioned EAPs and um, there there's, there's been a lot of discussion about the efficacy of EAPs. And um, I'm curious how what you've designed at Kirkland internally um, dovetails with what's available to the employees through the EAP. And, and for those listeners who aren't familiar with the term, EAP means Employee Assistance Program. And it is designed to provide an external resource for employees that need assistance of, uh, of many different flavors, but how does your well-being program interact with the EAP and, and, and what, effort, what, what efforts are there to coordinate the two or make the two at least synergistic or compatible? 
Sure. So, you know, at this point, so I've been there about a year. Um, to be honest, I haven't had much contact with the EAP. Um, they're definitely not coming in and providing, you know, internal con um, content in the form of, you know, actual presentations. Um, there's definitely things that are sent out to the staff, both attorneys and staff, um, by the benefits department regarding the EAP. Um, you know, for example, they've had a ton of um, information about COVID-19, you know, how to deal with it both mentally, with physically, you know, health-wise. Um, so we've been, you know, they've been kind of pushing that content out. But that's really done through the benefits department. Um, I'm really my, I, kind of my own separate internal EAP or LAP, um, you know, that I function independently. So they don't work directly, you know, with the staff and with the lawyers providing um, live educational contact. One of the things that I do for the attorneys is my programs are all CLE accredited. Um, and so many states have a specific substance abuse mental health credit. Illinois actually has a credit that's called that. Um, in New York, it's a little different. It's housed under their ethics and there's something similar in Texas and California. And then there's some states that don't have CLE accreditation at all. Um, but that's a, a difference between me and the EAP. Yeah, that makes that that makes perfect sense. It, it's just interesting to me because EAP programs have been around a long time, and I think that um, there's at least some lively discussion, um, both in the law firm and non-law firm context, as to how heavily they get utilized and the efficacy and um, and, and, and that's why I, I was curious to see if there was any sort of sinking of, of the two. But it sounds like you've been able to carve out a focus um, that, that really almost stands, stands on its own. Um, and then you leverage the benefits department as part of the sourcing for competent, capable providers that know how to work for lawyers. Um, yeah, I, you know, I utilize the benefits department, especially, you know, if, if people want to utilize their insurance um, and how to navigate their insurance, you know, in terms of flexible spending accounts, healthcare savings accounts, um, I still am creating my own separate kind of resource list, um, you know, especially in terms of therapists that are able to work with the attorneys. But to be honest with you, most of them do not take insurance. And, you know, it is, and it unfortunately is what it is, but they're kind of the best of the best. And so when I do have an attorney call up and say, you know, I do need a therapist, you know, who, who would you refer me to? I will give them options for both. You know, these are the people that I know and trust, um, but unfortunately they don't take insurance and this is their self pay rate. Um, but you can speak to the benefits department about using your out of network benefits and how to go about accessing those. Um, Cause I always tell people I'm, I'm dangerous enough to know enough information, but I'm not, I'm not savvy when it comes to kind of navigating all that. So I'll refer them back to the benefits department. Um, but when I do have someone that wants to access their insurance, the benefits department can pull up a list of people that are in their area that we can then reach out to, to see if they have availability and if it will be a good fit. Sounds like a, a pretty good partnership. Um, it is. I'm very yeah. happy that Kirkland, um, placed me there. And I know other firms, you know, it's, it's interesting. I have people reach out all the time 
pretty much weekly, if not biweekly, like how did you end up in your position? How can I look to moving into this type of position? And I always tell people, I'm like, every firm, even every company is going to house them, you know, somewhere different. It could be in benefits. It can be in professional development. It could be strictly in HR. Um, it's really across the board. That's um, that's great, Robin. And, and before we wind down um, our time together, can you maybe share um, your top three or four uh, pieces of advice for firms that are looking to start a program? I know that's probably a very um, under underwhelming number of bullet points to ask from someone for your <laughs> expertise, but. Um, you know, most firms or a lot of firms are just trying to get started. Do you have any guiding principles that, that you like to share or, or critical factors you think they should consider? Sure. You know, if, if a firm has the resources to actually hire someone into a position where they're going to be leading the program, um, I am biased. I will put that out there, but I definitely recommend that the person be a clinician whether it be a social worker, um, a licensed clinical professional counselor like myself, or a psychologist, um, I just, it brings a better understanding of what people are experiencing or going through. Because as you said earlier in the podcast, you know, these are medical conditions. Um, even if it's, you know, low-level stress and anxiety that maybe mindfulness and meditation can help, it's still a medical condition. Um, and it, I think it, it behooves firms to really take a clinical approach to the program. Um, and that's not to put aside, you know, the, the mindfulness meditation practitioners, um, but I think that's just one aspect of what they can look for. If a firm is, is going to add a well-being program, but not necessarily have someone designated internally to lead it, I would suggest they pair up with um, or associate themselves with a clinician on the outside because, you know, if you offer a well-being program, you know, in kind of whatever level you have, what if someone calls and says, I'm experiencing depression and they're giving significant symptoms, you have to have someone to refer them to, right? right. You can't just tell people, you can't talk to people about depression, substance use, stress or anxiety, and then not have a solution for them. So yes, because I mean, I was, they may by definition be in crisis. Right, exactly. Um, and even if, even if they're not in crisis, you know, if someone says, you know, I feel like my anxiety is getting heightened, um, I, I think I may need to talk to someone, um, you know, what should I do? You need to have an answer for them. And so um, there are a lot of good people out there that have a clinical background that have experience working with lawyers um, that can handle this sort of thing. The flip side is um, the well-being wellness movement is somewhat um, of a craze at the moment, right? It's out there. It's everywhere. You really can't look at any sort of legal website and not seeing something associated with that. And there's a lot of well-intentioned, good-meaning people out there that are interested in well-being and wellness, but don't have the clinical background. And I, I worry that if, if firms are associating themselves um, with a person who doesn't have the clinical backgrounds, they may not be providing the best support for their people. So well, and I think that's you know, a really critical point is to understand that some of these 
programs that are designed to help people manage stress, mindfulness, whatever the term du jour is, um, that, that there is an overarching sort of clinical architecture that, det that, that helps determine what, what is enough on, mm -hmm. and are coping strategies and nutrition strategies enough or for a particular person, are they part of something more so that right. by definition they're not enough? And I, I think that you've raised a really good point, which is you have to have some sort of clinical architecture to really mm -hmm. understand the efficacy of what you're teaching people and, and to understand when what you're teaching them will work and when it might not be enough. Right. Absolutely. And I think just aligning yourself with someone or, you know, having that support, you know, it's not necessarily you, you need to have someone on full time. Um, but if firms are interested, I have people out there that fit that description. You know, they have worked with the legal population for years and or are lawyers themselves and are also clinicians. And so they're very qualified to help guide firms. Um, you know, maybe set up a well-being program or manage it as it go as it goes along, kind of on, a, on an a la carte type basis. Robin, you've been a terrific guest and you've shared so much really good information. And I think this is the podcast where we delved the most into um, getting people into the right therapeutic mode. Um, would you be willing to share your contact information so that if there's any... Um, law firm folks out there that are thinking of doing this they might um they might ping you for some um, direction to some resources absolutely so my email is robin which is r-o-b-i-n dot bellow b as in boy e-l-l-e-a-u at kirkland.com um, and with working remotely email is absolutely the best way to find me well, uh, Robin, thank you so much for your generosity of, of time and for bearing with me. For listeners, we had some technical glitches um, <laughs> that were brought on by Monday brain fog um, solely um, within the confines of my mind. So Robin was very patient in rescheduling. This has been Erasing the Stigma, Conversations About Mental Health in the Legal Profession. My guest today has been Robin Bellow, the Director of Wellbeing at Kirkland and & Ellis. And, and Robin, thank you. Um, stay safe, and I appreciate um, the wealth of information you shared with us today. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.